Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we are back with part three, final part of Bikes versus Skis in our 2023 edition. And joining me here once again are David Golay, Luke Kappa, Simon Stewart, and public enemy number one in the state of Vermont, Dylan Wood. But you know, while young Dylan might still have a lot of appreciation to gain about the great state of Vermont, I have to give it to the kid. He may have come up with the best comparison of this entire episode. Shout out to his work. You'll catch that near the end as he's talking about Heritage Labs. And I got to say it, credit where credit is due. (laughs) Good job, Dylan Wood. Now, just before we get started here, I need to tell you that our early bird pricing for our upcoming Blister Summit ends June 1st. So the current early bird pricing is $250 for our upcoming Blister Summit. The dates for that are February 4th through the 8th, 2024. And it all goes down at our home base of Mount Crested Butte, Colorado. And I've got to say that any person listening to a part three of bikes versus skis, you've already made it through part one and part two, and now you're diving in for a part three. All I can tell you is your people will be there at the Blister Summit. This is your people. I don't actually imagine you have other people who are more your people than the people will be at the summit. And I know this because you're still here. You're still listening to this. And And you know you love it, as do we. Anyway, that's all I've got. If that doesn't convince you, I don't know what else to say, but I am willing to wager that those who have been to the summit would testify to the veracity of what I am claiming here. So anyway, come be with your people. Don't put it off. Sign up now before June 1st. Get the best pricing on the Blister Summit. And let's see, what else? More than 28 brands have already committed to attending the summit and more brands are confirming each week. By the way, if you're a brand and you haven't committed yet, we're going to definitely run out of spots here for sure. Now, at the Blister Summit, you will be able to demo skis, snowboards, backcountry gear, including split boards, AT skis and boots, backpacks, goggles, outerwear, and more. There will be four days of skiing and riding on new for next year gear at Crested Butte Mountain Resort, and there are backcountry tours as well as daily restorative yoga. Maybe I should get in on that, actually. Probably do need a little more yoga in my life. Shout out to Dana Craycaw, who's always trying to get me to go take her yoga class, and I have never gone. Anyway, there are also daily apre sessions with free drinks and food. And so, again, come be with your people in Mount Crested Butte. Don't miss out on the year's best prices. You should start planning your trip now, and we will include a link in the show notes of this episode for registration and discounted accommodations. 
So check that link and come see us. And now let's get to the other thing you know you love, Bikes versus Skis, part three. Here we go. Well, we are back for an unprecedented part three on Bikes versus Skis. Can't wait till we just basically start doing this every single week. And Bikes versus Skis becomes a 52-part weekly series that we do. You know, stay tuned, people. There's always a chance. Um, but happy to be back here with Dylan Wood, Simon Stewart, David Golay, and Sexy Luke Kappa. Sexy Luke Kappa is actually kind of rocking like this man bun thing right now. I feel like the sexy, he took it up a level. There's like regular sexy Luke, and this is even sexier Luke is what we're you know, all enjoying seeing, sorry, this is a, you know, audio medium rather than visual. You're really missing out folks. Thankfully. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, we've got a little more comparison work to do here. And I think where I wanted us to start, we have been asking our dear listeners to offer up some of their own thoughts uh, on these comparisons and we found it pretty interesting that it kept coming up again. A number of people were suggesting the Yeti Cycles to Black Crow's Skis comparison. Spoiler alert, our crew doesn't actually love that comparison. And so... Except for oh, me. Luke, is that your... Is, that's, what I, that's what I proposed. I wasn't 100% sold on my own take, but there was at least some some agreement with the the Instagram commenters. David, what do you not like about that comparison? I think that there's something to it in that they were both like kind of happened to really I think peak at their trendiness at about the same time, but otherwise I don't think it works very well. They I think of Yeti as making harder charging more demanding bikes and don't really see black crows in that same vein and i also think that they just market themselves very differently and present very different brand personas so it doesn't feel like a very clean match to me on those fronts yeah i think i think on the consumer side like the passion that people have and the hype surrounding both brands is similar but I totally agree with David in that, like, what the brand's actually trying to position themselves is quite different. Um, and I think that's where it starts to kind of fall apart. Maybe, maybe where the tie-in works better is that I would argue both have done a pretty damn good job in terms of sort of the community element. And if that's what our listeners are keying in on, that, okay, I just actually swung a little bit in real time right here. Because they really do, I think you, I think both brands do deserve credit for kind of building that community element. The Black Crows has kind of their annual get together. Um, I mean, those are those are powerful things. Um, I don't know about you know. David just said he he kind of views Yetis as being kind of more like harder chargers. I think of the Black Crows lineup, the the Anima still sort of holds that 
view. S- people who say the Corvus, I would just say, are kind of wrong about that. Um, the Corvus is, I think, a very nice. It's a nice ski, but it's actually pretty easygoing. The the current, the current one. one, the pink Corvus touring ski. Now that is a stiff charger game on, but I think there is um, kind of an appropriate level of um, options in the Black Crows lineup that they're not just they're not just trying to sort of do a harder charging speed first and foremost across the lineup in a way that maybe we are saying is more characteristic of Yetis across the board. At least in large part, yeah. Simon, tell us about Yeti. Well, one one thing you said that um that sort of resonated was that um Black Crows does a yearly gathering, which which Yeti does. It's it's um pretty prominent um out there for folks that are Yeti fans or loyalists. This is something that you aspire to go to. It's the they used to call that tribe gathering, but that became um, not politically correct for obvious reasons. Now it's just a gathering. But same sort of thing. They they build really good relationships with their with their riders and their customers. I think that's probably the connection that we're 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 looking at here. So we started being quite skeptical of the comparison. David, what's the better comparison, you think? Yeti to whom? Well, last time we talked about Yeti to Kesley quite a bit, kind of because of the sort of duality of their images and personas where they're both perceived as being fancy, but also making a bunch of really hard charging stuff. And I'm sticking with that. I have a different comparison for Black Crows if we want to head in that direction. Who do you got for Black Crows? I was going to put down Revel there. I think they are hmm. both companies that are quite popular, have their pretty devoted fans. They both are into doing a lot of bright colors and kind of interesting graphics and that kind of thing. And I think both do a good job of making pretty well-rounded, versatile bikes or skis, respectively, but aren't necessarily targeting one specific kind of niche or attribute across their line or rather aiming at just being well-rounded and versatile, generally speaking. Who else has thoughts on that comparison? Yeah, I'm, I feel like Revel's too new to have like the the passionate fan base that Yeti does, especially given Yeti's history in racing. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure. That one's not totally clear for me. Where it feels a bit off for me is in part that Black Crows had a minute where it was the hottest ski brand out there. And I mean, not saying that that's all completely gone away at all, but like you only get to stay, you know, white hot for so long. And I kind of feel like Revel hasn't hit its peak, (laughs) peak hotness yet. Um, I think it's actually a brand that if we had to place wagers on who might be able to get there in four or five years, I think they might be in the conversation if we're making predictions. Wow, that's a whole new question we could do. Who's, who do we think is going to be there in four or five years? But So, I think that's part of um, a little bit of the disconnect. Um, but in terms of trajectories, could I imagine Revel sort of assuming a bit of that Black Crowsian rise? Yeah, I kind of could actually. 
I think that's fair. All right. Dylan Woods, speechless. Mostly, I'm just, you haven't said anything that's liable to get you murdered yet. So, I think you're, I think you're doing great, Dylan. Um, moving on. Let's talk about line skis. Who wants to start with, like, what are the qualities or characteristics of line that would be relevant before announcing our bike comparisons? Dylan Wood. Okay. The silence, silence has ended. Here we go, folks. Buckle up. Uh, more funner. That's their motto. More funner. Not, not being too serious out there on the hill, making skis that are more playful than they are demanding and serious. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the Pandora series is their only directional series of skis left. Everything else has a twin tip and is pretty soft, at least to the extremities. Pandoras are twins. Not really. No. The 110 is, but for the most part, not. They're the they're the old sick days. Yeah. I only ski the Pandora 110. That's why I didn't know. Um, <laughs> okay, Sasha. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. Um, more funner. Where are we going? I know, I know the one brand that is going to be tempting here, but then let's see if this one's really going to hold up. Who's going to be the sacrificial lamb to say it? Luke? I'll go. I don't think mine is the best option. And I think it's mostly recency bias, but I initially thought of Cannondale um, because they've been around for a while. They tend to do weird stuff uh, and stick to like stick to their guns in that regard. And then more recently, they signed like more than half of the 50 to one crew. And that's the main thing that's I can't get out of my head. And they now both brands have really impressive athlete rosters, but I don't know. I struggled with that one a bit. David just sent me a note in the chat saying Luke cop is banned from any further bikes versus skis conversations. So, um, Perfect. See you guys later. <laughs> oh, come on. Right. This why, is why, 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 by Jonathan that it did not in fact happen, but, um, so I, I was making a face and was pretty skeptical when you started that, Luke. I think your point about the 50 to 1 and their athlete roster actually made me much happier with that one. Hmm. Um, That part I am quite on board with. Um, But I think in terms of the overall brand identity and product, it doesn't match up as well, especially because Cannondale if I had to bet sells way more road bikes than mountain bikes at this point in time, which doesn't really map to line, even though we never really got to a super clear consensus on what the uh, ski equivalent of road bikes is, no, no matter what <laughs> line doesn't make it for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Simon. I was just trying to figure out why Cannondale was a square word right there. It's like, you know, we all well, sort of, as soon as you said Cannondale, everybody's faces just changed. I'm like, they make great bikes. And yeah, sure. A, I, I can imagine the board meeting they were having or the the marketing meeting where they're like, all right, we got to, we got to buy us some cool. What should we do? And they're like, well, let's buy this whole pile of athletes right now. Let's go and just plug it in. Um, Cause they had to do something because they just, they just didn't have any cachet in that department. Um, and yes, in the roadside, for sure. Agree with, um, with David there a hundred percent. You know they they struggle a little bit in in some regards, and they have some they have some old stigmas that they're still trying to move through. And Luke, you touched on that with doing things that were weird, and they stick to those guns, and they've been known for that since sort of day one. 
Uh, and some of the stuff's been really great and some of it hasn't. So you're going to have a few misses when you do stuff like that, no doubt about it. Uh, and I'm not, you know, familiar enough with line skis to make a, to make a yes or no comparison on that. But that's just my take on, on them as it stands now. Luke? Uh, I'll switch it to Dylan shortly, but Dylan, in addition to your answer, I want to hear about what's the, what's the ski equivalent to a lefty yeah, fork. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's what I was thinking. Like yeah. this, this falls apart when you go back to these companies origins, yep. whereas line basically started as a ski blade company and Cannondale, like early Cannondale is like dudes in Lycra mm-hmm. going super fast with a lefty four. Monoski, isn't it? Isn't that the that's obvious exactly answer? That's what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> the monoski. Sorry. Yeah. So I, I want to, I mean, we're back into the whole, like, this is the thing about brands and brands identity. You get stuck with them and then it's real hard to change these things right over time. And here's one aspect of the line thing that curious to hear if you guys think there's the best analog to this on the bike side but you know line back in the day made one of the hardest charging skis out there the mothership right so we just got done it's like oh line is more funner you know and it's fun time party skis and park skis well that mothership was no joke and then they you know got away from that and then cycled through and had their influence series and those influence skis were outstanding sort of charger skis then they moved away from that there was the supernatural series i still love the the line supernatural 108 it's not around anymore but then one of the biggest surprises in the last couple of years luke was the the line optic 114 that ski was kind of no joke um, and so I feel like while it is the more funner company, they actually have had a number of these, like, let's, let's move into a bit more of the directional charger territory. And then they kind of pull back and then they'll sort of try it again. And then they kind of pull back. And, um, of course this is based on no internal conversations at line, you know, are they sort of feeling like, oh, you know what, maybe people just aren't coming to us for the directional charger or will they keep sort of shooting their shot from time to time to be able to do both, right? The more park-oriented, freestyle-oriented skis in addition to like really good chargers, which they have made in the past. Is there an analog to this in the bike world where you feel like a brand has their thing, but they keep sort of shooting their shot to get into another category, then they kind of pull back thoughts? It's not exactly what you just described, but I think uh, propane fits for line pretty well. They are both bike brands that in large part kind of market themselves as being fun oriented and playful a whole bunch of propane's athletes, even ones who are primarily known for racing DH, like Phil Atwell are super talented free riders and do a lot of jibby street riding and that kind of stuff too. Uh, and they both make a bunch of kind of more nimble, playful sort of bikes and some Enduro race bikes and a DH bike. And so they've kind of got both the, 
chargers and the more playful free ride bikes covered really well they don't they're just a mountain bike company so they kind of line up with line on just making free ride park etc skis and lines case um and they're both uh touch on the more affordable side of average too let's talk about season season equipment newish company headlined by eric pollard and austin smith um pollard the skier smith the snowboarder um season came out right from the jump building both skis and boards uh which is not a very common thing we have seen ski companies get into making snowboards we have seen very few examples but but a few examples maybe one that i can think of of a board company that started making skis that eh, we'll stick with a few examples of that um these guys were doing both out of the gate and maybe that is one of the most defining characteristics i don't know actually um if that will translate on the bike side per se but luke when you're thinking about season what bike company do you think lines up i think uh about simplicity that was like one of their defining traits when they launch they're not going to be tweaking things a lot year to year they maintain very simple graphics um and they've kind of tried to make a a trim but versatile uh model lineup so they don't make a ton of different models uh and that mostly just made me think of like some of the single pivot uh full suspension bike companies uh like starling or orange um where they're focused on simplicity and they're not changing a ton year to year and for that reason i was leading orange but then i think i think season's skis and boards look really really nice i wouldn't exactly say the same about orange's bikes it's very subjective, but Starling, I feel like they're just simple tubing, single pivot. Uh, that that comparison feels uh, more more accurate to me. Okay. Um, anybody else on that one? Going once, that's our answer. Next up, little company called DPS. Talked about them a bit here, um, but let's see who we like best on this comparison. Dylan Wood, what do you got? I had Pivot for DPS, and I think DPS is often equated to Yeti, but where I think that falls apart is Yeti is very race-bred, race-inspired, whereas DPS is more of like a powder-slash-free-ride-inspired company. And where DPS and Pivot both share a lot in common is they're both very, you know, engineering and high quality focus first, and they're not really ashamed to be that way. Um, you know, Pivot pivots are pretty expensive, as are DPS skis, and they're not really trying to get out of that um, realm at all. And yeah, they, I think they both you'll you'll you'll, you'll see their products under the feet or the handlebar or the hands and feet of, you know, sort of the middle age slash older riders and skiers, I think. And they both done pretty cutting edge things in maybe like the mid 2010s, but have sort of kind of plateaued in, in terms of like introducing new technologies and whatnot. So that's my answer. I think that's pretty good. And, you know, we've been talking a lot through this about, brand identity 
And Tumas Loxo from DPS was at our Blister Summit. And I thought that he did a terrific job of on the like brand clarity point of view. And we have been saying like, first and foremost, be clear about who you are. And I think that they do that well. I think if we're talking about, um, I guess it's the flip side of the coin or maybe the same side of the coin, once you have kind of that brand identity, it can be kind of hard to shift it. One of the things that I've actually said to Tumas is, I still don't know that people know broadly about DPS. They're building those skis in downtown Salt Lake City. Like you can go to the factory and it is a full-blown ski factory. They're building them right here in America, you know, and I um, I don't know that I think that is part of the DPS story. So again, it's kind of what Dylan said. Yes, it, there's a higher price point. I think people would associate DPS as using perhaps cutting edge materials or high end materials but I don't think they get that same traction when it comes to like built right here in the US that a number of other brands do get. So again, why is that? I don't exactly know, but I think that I don't know that I'm wrong about that. If we did a survey of attributes of like, what are the standout elements of these products? I don't think that's one of them. And um so I don't know, maybe, you know, something to like, how does that get into the water or into the mix more? Because it's a fact, like that's not, that's not marketing BS, like that's a fact. And um, I don't know, interesting. Simon? Interesting because, you know, that's not something I knew about DPS. Um, so that sort of, you know, strengthens your argument for sure. And it makes me think about um, like companies that have some US um, manufacturing going on also to help sort of align that comparison. Mm-hmm. And 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 the fun thing that Dylan mentioned too is that, you know, you do see some or well, perhaps middle-aged older skiers on DPS skis. And I think that Ibis kind of slots in there a little bit also mm-hmm. just because they do have US manufacturing, not on all their bikes, but they are making some bikes in the USA. Um, they do have some some would say they have sort of um an older demographic they've been around a long time but they do you do see a lot of middle-aged and older people on ibis and younger people now too as well so because they have some some compelling you know like the ripmo and so forth but perhaps that's a a comparison Mm -hmm. we should we should um, toss around a little bit Mm -hmm. interesting david i think both of those are pretty solid for the reasons that were already articulated I had something different, though. The company I had written down for DPS was evil. And so my thought on that is that the at least the modern iteration of evil started out. Their first model was a DH bike. DPS started making powder skis and then moved into other stuff. They are both high end and priced accordingly. I think their clientels have a good bit of overlap. Uh, I think that both had a stronger reputation for really innovating in terms of shapes and DPS's case or bike geometry and evil's case and stuff like evil with the original following. that was one of the first really aggressive short travel bikes kind of if you squint lines up with just DPS doing 
significantly different things from a lot of the industry a while back and they're settled into making a perfectly solid lineup at this point but neither has quite the same reputation for doing things really differently and innovating in the way that they once did so that was my thought on that so i'm not sure that i agree with this idea that dps isn't innovating now as much as it say used to certainly i think it's fair to say that you have to give dps points in terms of the introduction of certain shapes that have become widespread now um and it's not a completely simple history there were other brands that were building some shapes um, at some similar times, you know, the historical timeline, which is often the case when it comes to innovations, it's rarely like one person or one company that did it and completely independently. That's rarely how I think innovation works. So I certainly think from a shapes point of view, it's less radical than it was. Um, and yet from a materials point of view, <laughs> You know, I'd way rather ski most DPS skis today than from eight years ago, where there was such an emphasis on lightweight and carbon and lightweight carbon is the most cutting edge. That is the end all be all material. I was like, yeah, no, that's not true. You know, and so I think what there has been more of an emphasis on is addressing <laughs> ride quality rather than just like let's make the lightest you know carbon skis out there um and so to me it's a little hard because i think that does represent like progression a, a good progression but i don't know i don't know if we're if, if that's like splitting hairs or just coming from a slightly different perspective from what you were saying david yeah i don't think i meant that dps has done nothing new or hasn't evolved that wasn't my point but rather just that it feels like they are doing fewer things that really dramatically stand out relative to a number of other companies at this point. So we've moved from revolution to kind of the evolutionary iterative. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So that was the long conversation about DPS as either pivot or IBIS. I think I want to circle back to IBIS. Did anybody else have comparisons that they would that they think are more accurate than the dps analogy i had something different here and the company i had put down was stokely i think they are both higher end companies this falls apart a little bit with uh ibis's aluminum frames now because they have got some more affordable stuff in the lineup than they once did so i'll grant that's a little bit of a hole in my argument here but i think they are both companies that make good, well-rounded, not super demanding products that appeal to a slightly older clientele by and large and are, for the most part, just a little bit more traditional in their design elements. Ibis's geometry is a little more conservative. They don't have any super long travel free rider DH bikes in the lineup. Stokely is generally making fairly traditionally mounted skis and that kind of stuff. So that was basically my thought process for that one. Luke, thoughts on that one? 
Yeah, I think it works. Um, I feel like Ibis, especially with the Ritmo AF and Ripley AF, their metal versions that have been seemingly a focus in the past few years, those bikes in particular make me less inclined to to pair Stokely. them with Stokely. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I like I also like I thought Dylan or uh, it was a decent comparison comparing Ibis to DPS as well. Um, And I kind of put those companies in kind of the general same area if we're talking about the bikes versus skis Venn diagram. Um, So, yeah, I, 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 I like overall, I like the Ibis Stokely comparison. Simon. Well, one of the things I was going to bring up about Ibis is more on the cultural side of the company. Um, I think more so than nearly all the other companies out there, they forge really personal relationships with their riders better than anybody else out there. Um, If you email them, you might most likely will get a response from the company founder, Scott Nickel. If you go to an event, you'll see Scott Nickel. If you're, you know, anywhere where Ibis is around, or you go to the Ibis migrations, which are akin to Yeti's gatherings, you'll find Scott Nichols. So I, I see them forming these, and maybe, but that's perhaps why they have, you know, somewhat of a, um, you know, they hit a lot of different markets, but they have a lot of sort of older clientele because they've been around for a long time because they have this personal relationship with the company. Um, how does that sort of correlate to Stokely or, for instance, DPS? Are you going to you going to have that same personal relationship with them? Certainly not with the founder um and if we're talking about like the founder that's an interesting one to think about on the ski side of things i mean um in terms of like the question of who is the most active founder in the ski world for like actually showing up at events answering the phone emailing that kind of a thing the one that comes to mind uh, actually two that come to mind would be off the top of my dome, so let's see if you guys have different answers, but like Pete Wagner at Wagner Custom Skis and Mike McCabe at Folsom. Um, those two are pretty quick to come to mind. They're both custom ski makers and so, you know, smaller than an IBIS, relatively speaking. So, yeah, I think going up the ladder, I, I mean, it's interesting. Going up the ladder, who's really showing up at events, right? Who I feel like Matt Matt Sturbin's at Wonder Alpine is yeah. a decent one. They're much newer, like much much newer. Matt deserve, yeah. season, same story. Um, Matt, de- yeah, Sturbin's at at Wonder would be in that that group. Interesting, interesting. And then Scott Scott Andrews at Owen Three P is like the opposite. <laughs> <Just hiding> now <laughs> like, he like everyone knows. He's the guy behind it, but you'll yeah. never see him. <laughs> yeah, we're we're trying to uh we're trying to break him out. Though after after our wildly, wildly well, I'm just gonna say amazing coffee nerd conversation over on Crafted. I don't know if that if that diminished the likelihood of ever getting Scott out in public or increased it. I don't know. Probably diminished, but it's it was a tour de force if anybody has missed that episode. Um Moving on, let's go with Comensal. Man, we've brought Comensal up a couple times, but what's our definitive analog in 2023? Dylan Wood. I've got Armada here, mostly because one, they both have pretty stacked athlete teams and those athletes are all pretty young and pretty relevant. Um, Two, their customers are also all 
pretty young and affordability is a big part of their their brand um they're both bigger than i think they'd like to admit and more mainstream than they'd like to admit and they're both pretty like free ride slash freestyle oriented and even though Comensol does have a super stacked race team um they're they're not really focused on like xc and you know pedaling uphill super fast whereas you know armada does have like touring skis but they market them as being like they're not light so you can run uphill they're light so you can like go further and and bigger so that's my answer armada got something better luke i still think faction and common soul match up the most for me um basically for all the same reasons that dylan listed um I think Faction is more similar to them in terms of the media output. Uh, both Faction and Comensol put out some amazing uh, in-house produced uh, video content. Uh, I think one thing that both Armada and Faction are missing from Comensol is that neither of them have a racing department. And even though I don't think of racing immediately when I think of Comensol, they have, I mean, it feels like there's a dozen Comensal teams on the World Cup circuit every year. They have some of the best riders in the world. Uh, and so I can't, but I can't think of any ski company that has like really, really strong racing and matches up with everything else that Dylan just described. Uh, but to me, Faction matches up a bit more because I, I feel like I associate them slightly more with younger, more up and coming riders than Armada. I feel like Armada, I associate more with people, not like the, the highest level pros, but kind of, especially on the park side, like people that have been working their way up for a while now. And like, like Max Moffat, who just signed with them last year, like he'd been coming up for years and years. And now he's like cemented himself as one of like the main people in that, in that kind of like, I don't know, like, middle tier professional skier class same with like quinn wolferman and that's who i associate with armada whereas faction i think of i mean they have those athletes too but i i see more of like the the 12 year olds coming out of lax in europe who are already throwing triples i feel like every one of them is on a faction prodigy 1.0 uh so that's my take what what's happening with comensal skis should we do we need to bring this up Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. I was going to ask so that they, question. <laughs> yeah. I, so they are now apparently designing their skis in-house. They used to actually be rebranded faction skis. Uh, but they, as a, I think it was, I think this past season was the first year where it was under 100% their own built ski or uh, own design skis. They, I don't have a handle on them. Like uh, the only, I, I know they had a couple people on like the Freeride World Qualifier series that were on their skis. Uh, a couple really good park skiers who are on their skis. I've never seen a pair in person. All of them are supposedly ridiculously light uh and sound kind of terrifying um i've heard good things about the their clash ski uh or maybe it's the meta um i would like to get on some next season but i feel like they're so new that i can't think of an equivalent bike brand on that front david golay 
the equivalent bike brand is obviously Rossignol. They are mm. the company that's basically mostly known for the other sport, but have started dipping their toe into the opposite huh. one. And uh, neither has a very clear cut identity in their non-primary sport yet because they are just too new at it. Yeah, I had Rossi bikes for someone else for similar reasons. <laughs> Simon? But yeah, I feel like that's the more direct one. Well, I was just going to, um, just to build on the, on, on Commissol, just to throw something else out there that one thing I think they do better than just about every other company out there, even the really big ones is they make the best kids bikes on the market, period. Um, hmm. I don't know how that correlates to a ski brand you might align hmm. them with, but everything from a Strider all the way up to, um, dual suspension kids bikes to, um, e kids bikes, their kids bikes are, they're the best. Wow. There you go. Look at that. Um, I don't know that we would know the answer to what ski company is making the best kids skis other than, you know, saying we know that like moment skis, Owen three P skis, they pride themselves on like, these are just that have the exact same kind of build quality as our adult skis. They're just smaller. And they both complain to me. They're like, this is really stupid and we shouldn't do this because it's really expensive, but it's what we do. And so I, I can't speak to what other companies are doing, but I know that, um, yeah, Scott Andrus at ON3P and Luke Jacobson at Moment will complain a lot. It's both like brag and complain that they're like, they're like these are the best kid skis going because they're just actual real skis. Um, but they are not profit generators. Let's just put it that way, I guess. Um, yeah, I, that's all I got. Um, let's talk, man. Okay, let's do this. Let's talk about Elon. Dylan Wood. So, Elon is where I put Cannondale, both because they're both pretty like medium to larger size companies. They're, they've both been around for a while. They've never been like the hottest, the most popular, the most successful, the most relevant, but they've just kind of been steadily trucking in the background and making good stuff, being pretty low key about it. I have a slight difference there, but let's go to Luke. Yeah, I, I think that is a very fair point. I had giant, um, because both Elon and Giant make a lot of other companies' products and don't have the biggest like name or brand recognition for their own products in in certain circles at least, um, but make some good stuff. Uh, so that's what I thought. But I, I do think the scale in terms of the products that they actually put out, like Giant makes so many like lower end bikes and commuter bikes and bikes you can buy at walmart i think um so i don't think the scale is totally accurate but mostly for the manufacturing element yeah i had that for exactly the same reasons that luke did yeah when dylan said something like you know they're maybe not the most popular if i was running a lawn i'd be like dude we build everything for everyone else what are you talking about you know like I, i might i might sort of be okay with uh with that but but yeah, that's what I had. I thought for given the manufacturing and how much Elon does for other brands, that that Elon with Giant seems to 
it's it's not perfect for the reasons that Luke said, but it's just hard to shake the like manufacturing for other for other companies part of it. Um, okay, let's call that let's call our work done on that one. Okay, Icelandic. I just had Ben Anderson, the founder of Icelandic, on our Blister podcast earlier this week. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation. I learned stuff about that company's history that I hadn't known. And um, yeah, I, I think people should listen to that if somehow, like well, I guarantee there's nobody out there if you're not like, if you weren't one of the folks from the early days of Icelandic, you're going to learn things about that brand from that conversation. But it gave me, a, it, I mean, to be honest, it made me like the brand more. Like at, there were things about the trajectory and how Ben and the team are thinking about certain things that um, I'm I'm quite impressed. It, it made more sense knowing the story, whereas I think I used to be like, what is this ski company doing also putting on this massive concert at Red Rocks? And um, I think Ben did a really good job of kind of articulating a vision on that. So anyway, what do we think? What bike company would we associate with Icelandic? Luke Kappa. Yeah, so I had Evil here for basically all the same reasons that David had them lined up with DPS. Um, I feel like both Icelandic and Evil were like kind of shot to popularity a little ways back and have maintained some pretty a pretty strong following. Also, like having not been involved in the bike industry when Evil like launched their DH bike and that was like the big deal then. I mostly know them for their very uh, distinct aesthetics and that's how I think a lot of people identify uh, with Icelandic skis as well. Uh, I think they're both... uh, They both tend to favor a slower turnover cycle in terms of updating products. They tend to find something that works and stick with it and then, uh, at least on the ski side, update graphics every year. but yeah, that's that's what I had. I don't think like I feel like Evil is a much more like like or comes across as a much more performance oriented brands. They only do carbon. Their website is all black and really difficult to read for some reason. Whereas Icelandic is like colors, wild artist drawings everywhere. Uh, so it kind of falls apart there. But I thought it was an all right comparison. I like the all black website that's difficult to read. That's a drives me nuts every time. Brand identity play right there <laughs> dylan i really struggled to come up with something for icelandic because i don't really think there is an equivalent in the mountain bike world to me icelandic is like a marketing company that also makes skis they're very graphics and art oriented um you know they haven't really i don't think they've changed their most popular ski the nomad 105 in like a decade but dylan you need to listen to the conversation because change they're changing they're overhauling the entire nomad line as we speak okay well we're next next yeah we'll we're we're living in the current right now you're living in the future um (laughs) always maybe we'll maybe talk about that next year um but i don't yeah and you can like you can buy prints of their artwork on their site they sell like bathing suits you know they put on that massive concert which i've been to several times and you're looking around like i i'm pretty sure like am i the only skier here um at least like you know if you're like in the crowd you're like i don't think these people actually ski um 
and I don't, yeah, evil is okay, but they, they feel a lot more product oriented. Whereas I don't, I don't think that's the same with Icelandic. Hmm. To be honest, actually, Dylan, I think that, I think that I probably would have previously agreed with you on that, like, seems like a marketing company almost first that happens to sort of build skis. And I guess with what I just said, like five minutes ago, that's what I feel like has shifted up a bit for me. Um, and think about it too, right? We spend a lot of time, we've done a lot of blister podcast conversations talking about how to sort of grow the sport. And are we doing a thing where we're just insularly talking with the same, you know, 25 people all the time? So when you're like, I'm at this concert looking around and is like, I don't know that these people ski as like, okay, which way do we want to have it? Do we want to be expanding this net or do we not? And um, so I think there's actually, I mean, Ben is a really good skier. And you can hear his story about buying ski presses and building his own skis and going through that. And so, yeah, I guess I'd say that's exact. It's probably exactly when I just said I like the brand more now, given the conversation I just had with him. Um, it's a different take. Maybe it's not everybody's cup of tea, but I would push back on the idea that these are people that don't actually, one, care about skiing. And two, don't care about the skis themselves. Because what do we also do? We complain. We literally complain about companies that are turning over new models all the time. And we're literally like, stop doing that. Yeah. I mean, I'm John from Icelandic told me that they were going to update the Nomads. My heart dropped a little <laughs> bit because that is such an easy ski to recommend. And there's a reason yeah. they've kept it mostly the same for a very long time. Anyway, interesting. I think we're going to keep it moving, but wait a second. I actually think I'm completely fundamentally confused about evil at this point in history. Like, can we come back to like what this brand is and is up to? Anybody help me here? David? I'm a bit confused by them at this point also. I think they were absolutely killing it. Four or five years ago, they the following was one of the first really good, aggressive short travel trail bikes that hit the market and was deservedly super popular. And it just feels like they have stagnated and not updated much in a very coherent way in a while and are just making a lot of really similar stuff to where they were some years ago in a period where the bike industry has evolved a ton and the sort of norms are changing pretty quickly and evil just feels like they're slow to catch up to it. Simon. Exactly. Yep. Huh. But with that said, the, the following, the, the bikes are still really good even by today's standards. So there's that, you know, the same sentiment that we just talked about with Icelandic, like don't change if the name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, five years ago, um, following Reckoning, I'd have been like, those were um, high on my list of bikes that I would I would be happy to ride. And then and you, you just don't think about them right now today because there hasn't been anything new. They don't have a big presence out there on the socials or marketing or anywhere. They're a pretty quiet company all the way around. So, sort of fallen out of, um, you know, bikes I think about very often, honestly. And they just dropped 
pretty much their whole athlete team too. So they don't really have that going on anymore either. What what's happening there is I I I, I will ask because I do not know. I, has there been leadership changes at the top? Are there financial bad things happening here? Like none of this sounds frankly healthy. Yeah, it doesn't seem all that great, but I don't have a very clear picture on what's going on in there either. It's just a little bit of a black box to me. Okay. Well, evil and black box seems to go hand in hand. Um, let's talk about Forefront. Lou Kappa, you're up. I focused on a few key aspects, which might not, might not be the most important overall, but I chose Nuke Proof because they're direct to consumer. They make pretty solid products all around, not a ton of super wild ones with a couple exceptions. And they're basically inherently linked at this point to particularly one very, very, very famous athlete that has now become almost a part of the brand. Um, Hoji on Forefront side, Sam Hill on Nukeproof side. Uh, so that's, that's my proposal. I, I'm, I'd be interested in rebuttals. Dylan? I compared him to YT in part two, and I'm not going to repeat that. You can just go back and listen. But I, I feel like Luke actually has a better answer here, especially with that Hoji to Sam Hill comparison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of like that too. Yeah, I was going to say, I also think that's pretty good. And Sam Hill's maybe not quite as inextricably linked to Nukeproof as Hoji is to Forefront in my head, just because he has... He's been there for quite a while now, but he has moved around a lot. And a lot of his early kind of heyday was on Iron Horse and then specialized. But that's pretty good. And I think, frankly, better than anything I came up with for Forefront. So I'm into it. I like it. Nukeproof doesn't have a bike called the Sam Hill. True. (laughs) True. Great. Dylan, it's that kind of... They they have a Sam Hill edition. They have a a Sam Hill edition (laughs) of one of their bikes. Don't forget that. It's not quite the same, but it's close. (laughs) Keeping it moving. Um, RMU, Rocky Mountain Underground. So this is who I had Rosignol bikes for. I think the previous comparison that was stated for common salt skis to Rossi bikes makes more sense. Um, But I do think with how many different things RMU has branched out into lately, uh, they're becoming at least to certain parts of their customer base, they're better known. Like some people on the front range that I talked to have no idea that RMU makes skis. They know that they have a cool bar in Breckenridge or a cool bar in Whistler or in Truckee, I think is the other one. Or they've seen people using their backpacks or travel bags or hip packs uh, for mountain biking. Um, Ironically, in the past like three years they've overhauled their skis and i think they're really a huge improvement but i feel like for a Mm -hmm. while there they were very clearly focused on other areas and so it's a it's not a great comparison but i don't think anyone knows rosinol bikes as a bike company first and foremost i think they know them as something else so it's almost like they're kind of like on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of having their hands in many different areas. Um, but yeah, that's my proposal. We can do better than this. Who's got 
Go for it, Jonathan. <laughs> By we, I meant somebody else on this call. <laughs> Dylan, this is your oh, shot. This is going to be a disappointing answer because I don't have a better answer. Oh, my God. Because RMU was another very confusing one to me. In similar to Icelandic, it seems its company is more rooted in its culture than its products. Like RMU's website is mountainculture.com. It's not like rmuskis.com and you go on their website and mountain bike is before ski on their, on their nav bar and they don't even make mountain bikes or really any like mountain bike hard goods in the way that they make skis and they make good skis. Simon Stewart. Um, <clears throat> uh, my head's in, in Colorado to make this sort of um, connection and um, I came up with alchemy bikes for this one. Um, for a couple of reasons. Um, well, first, you know, both companies are the exact same age. There's, there's one reason that should win just because of that since 2008. <laughs> um, second, Alchemy also has a cool bar. <laughs> so, now we're, you know, how can we beat this, right? Uh, <laughs> as far as the, the, the lineup goes and things like that, um, Alchemy is, is pretty cool. In fact, they are making everything in the US and they have you know, some unique bikes and they have branched out a little bit. Um, they've got good products. I, I wouldn't say that they're at the forefront of um, mountain bike technology. They're not far off. Um, that's why I'm making that connection with RMU because are you guys sort of aligning that RMU isn't isn't really crushing it on the um, on the ski development and ski manufacturing side? And where where are their skis made, incidentally? Yeah, so they have varied over the years. Um, I think the first ones were pressed in one of the founders garages. And then for a while there, it got hazy. I wasn't sure for the past few years, they have been, their skis have been produced in, uh, Sweden in one of the factories there that does a lot of the smaller companies. Um, and I definitely would not say that they are at the forefront of like pushing really wild construction or anything like that. Um, and tend to stick to, more tried and or at least the recent models just tried and true simple construction kind of standard materials but i think the way they've executed it has been has been really good for the most part um i think they're the ironic thing is that <laughs> they make a lot of like from 106 to 120 i think they have four models at least um actually it might be five and and then they have variations of several of their models um and they all feel kind of similar but i feel like they have kind of settled on a general recipe that's gonna work for a pretty wide range of people and then tweaked it a bit depending on certain circumstances did we get to a final answer i'm just gonna pretend that i thought of simon's answer of alchemy also and perfect co-sign it Okay. I mean, the same year. Same year. Yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no getting past um, that. This actually, speaking of obvious answers, I think we've touched on them across this three-part series. But, you know, if Simon's getting all this bonus points for founded in the same year, I mean, Rocky Mountain Underground, what about Rocky Mountain Bikes? I have the exact counterpoint. So, if RMU's... Uh, Dylan, what did you say their website is? Uh, mtnculture.com. Rocky Mountain Bikes is just bikes.com. Yeah. <laughs> they only yeah, do bikes. Only yeah. bikes. So I feel like it okay. doesn't really so, work. Yeah. Have we, did we talk about Rocky Mountain on the bike side? Yeah, they came up last time. Episode one, I think. Yeah. Who, who did we? There was some disagreement. We weren't necessarily fully aligned on it, but we did talk about them a bit. 
you know, we've been thinking about this, you know, nonstop. W- what do we like? What are we going with? Rocky Mountain Bikes is who on the ski side? I think it's not 100% perfect, but the answer I had written down was Scott. They make a pretty wide range of mountain bikes in Rocky's case. Scott's got their thing going with their free ride skis and stuff. But I think one of the things that I sort of associate with both of them a lot is making very lightweight, kind of stiff stuff, frames, skis, respectively. And uh, from that perspective, I see them matching up. It's not great in terms of where they're located or kind of how they market themselves necessarily. But in terms of the actual product side of things, I think it works. How is Rocky Mountain marketing itself? They're very Canadian and making particular note of that. They've got a lot of very strong kind of early days free ride baked into their kind of company history. They don't have as much of that really still active as part of their identity at this point, but it's at least a big part of where they came from initially. So it's like buy two Rocky Mountain bikes, get a free moose. Like, is that? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Maple syrup for suspension fluids, et cetera. Yeah. Oh my God. There's a lot of, there's a lot of hockey references. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They're really popular, you know, well, everywhere, but Canada, you see them everywhere. Just like you would see, you know, um, a specialized dirt track. It's, um, it's Canada's House Canada's brand. mountain bike, Canada's <laughs> house brand. I like that. That's that's if if that's not their slogan, it should be. What about Norco though? Norco. Yeah. What about Norco as Canada's house brand? Are we are we denying them let's, that right? Let's do this. Let's duke it out. Rocky Mountain versus Norco. Isn't Norco partially based in the U.S.? Now, I mean, they're Canadian, and I think they just they're like a solid runner up, but. I don't think they make as big a deal of being Canadian as Rocky does. Like they're, they're not as Canadian. Look, yeah, they're kind of, yeah, they're, they're not really quite as Canadian. Like I mean, and Rocky's Closet got a maple Canadian. leaf in their logo and so on and so forth. And Norco's not making as much of a point of emphasis of that. Dylan, thoughts? Um, when going to Rocky Mount, I'm just thinking about the fact that they're one of the only companies who makes their own e-bike. Um, like drive systems. They're not using, you know, Shimano's step or other ones out there. And I'm trying to think of like who, who's doing that in a similar fashion on the ski side. And that sort of brings my mind to renown in the sense that they're making their own, you know, vibe stop construction. And that's like an integral part of their skis. But I do think there's a scale and like a history problem there. Yeah, I was going to say Dina Star maybe in terms of like strong uh, history and free ride. I think the popularity is closer than Scott uh, skis, uh, at least in North America. You don't see Scott skis very, very much. I think they're much more popular in Europe. Um, I like D- Dina Star sometimes will reference it's kind of like in terms of regional uh origins but not not nearly as much as rocky um but i think the broad level brand identity feels somewhat comparable yeah i think that's pretty good actually i like, I like that, that one huh i mean dina star first of all dina star is french as hell so see that works I mean, then 
Yeah, I think I think it's maybe just that like they don't they don't screen that in their North American marketing at least. Um, they they keep it. I feel like they separate it. Um, but anyway, I mean, yeah, they did put Mont Blanc or. Uh, or no, is the Beck on one of their skis? Dina Star's French as hell. Year. So I like this. If Rocky Mountain is Canadian as hell, Dina Star is French as hell. Strong free ride. I mean, Dina Star and free ride right now is real kind of synonymous, I would argue. And way back in the yeah. day, too, with like the Legend series. Um, does Is Rocky Mountain enjoying that free ride? Chop street cred today, less so. Less so. It doesn't. I don't think it's ever going to go all the way away, though. I mean, they've still got the sort of the titans of the sport that started free riding on their bikes. Like nobody's going to forget that. No, totally. But I don't think it's as core a part of their current identity and athlete roster and that kind of stuff right this minute. Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to see as many Rocky Mountains in the Rampage starting gate as you're going to see Dina Star skis on the Freeride World Tour. Very true. Okay, moving on. We just mentioned Scott, but let's circle back there. What do we think the best comparison is, Sexy Luke? Scott is Scott. Scott is Scott. They have done some kind of like my Cannondale comparison earlier. They seem to. like to do things differently and not apologize for it. Uh, more recently, Scott has, with their fusion of bold, uh, they're going putting shocks inside frames. No one else is doing that apart from bold. Uh, very polarizing from what I've heard. Uh, Scott skis tend to, as David mentioned, they've made some very light, very stiff skis over the years. Um, that work really well for Jeremy Heights and can be a handful for people who don't straight line 50 degree thousand foot faces. <laughs> Even though they, they like the old Punisher or uh, Scrapper uh, was really fun in certain scenarios, but did wasn't wasn't the wasn't like a mass appeal ski. And I think I, I, I need to spend more time on their kind of more all mountain collections, but Overall, especially given the fact that like Scott is, they do winter sports, they do mountain bike, they make accessories and clothing for both those sports. They do a lot of different things to the point where I feel like their brand identity is kind of like watered down for in in the individual sports, at least from my perspective. Uh, And given that they do both of those things, I feel like that, uh, yeah, makes them most comparable to themselves. Anybody got a better answer? Scott is Scott. I mean, duh. They were founded the same year. So that, <laughs> probably. Probably. <laughs> I, they even have the same website. <laughs> I mean, our work here is done. Um, Orbea. Who is Orbea? The Orbea of the ski world. Uh, my answer for this was Fisher. They're mm. uh, both European companies that are... Um, better known for, well, in Orbea's case, road bikes and, um, you know, Fisher's big on, they got race skis, they've got XC skis, etc. Um, but Orbea's making a bigger push on their mountain bikes of late and making some really good stuff. There have been some Fisher free ride 
all mountain skis that have gone over really well yeah. of late. And so I think it's a pretty good one. Oh my God. I think you nailed that. We're, I'm not even letting you guys talk. We're just, we're just done there. Wow. That was a mic drop. I want to ask about Heritage Labs. We had Marshall Olson on Gear 30 maybe a couple months ago. Heritage Labs, I, I'm like, there can't possibly be an analogy here on the bike side, but Heritage Labs is basically bringing back certain shapes, certain ski models that have gone the way of the dodo bird. Um, but they have a small passionate following. And I'm like, is there any bike company out there possibly bringing back kind of older models? Uh, uh, Dylan Wood. Yeah. The equivalent to Heritage Labs in the bike world is Facebook Marketplace. The, <laughs> if you want a ski, to, like you can't get those coveted ski designs because people are all hoarding them or in, and going out and breaking them. If you're someone who's like, man, I'm really not happy with the current state of the bike world and like, I wish we could go back like 10 years, go on to Facebook marketplace and you'll find like an old stump jumper for like 500 bucks or less. No, that's like, you could, you get one for like a hundred bucks and you'd be happy. I, if, if, if someone started a bike brand, be like, yeah, we're, we're just, you know, 2008, that was the peak of mountain bike performance and geometry. Like we're going to start making, you know, the old specialized enduro geometry again. They'd sell two bikes and go out of business in three months. Amazing answer, Dylan. I feel yeah. like you've, I feel like you, you know, you've kind of just played this whole game. You're, you're like, you haven't taken any shots really. Like you just kind of been out on the floor running around, not doing much. And that, that was a mic drop. Um, all right. Heritage Labs, Facebook Marketplace. This gets back to, I think, our point where we've talked about this a bit. Nobody wants to ride a bicycle from like 10 years ago versus like what we have on the market today. Um, maybe five years ago, things can start to get a little bit debatable. Um, two, three, four years ago, sure. Like there's some great stuff on the ski side, as we have been saying, like there are skis that are 10 years old, 12 year old designs um, that I would happily, happily go ski today. And uh, I guess this just <laughs> comes back to our point that in the evolution of bike design, nobody's trying to bring back past bikes. David? I actually have a serious answer for this one, though. And it is Torah bikes who are making what is essentially a modern version with modern geometry. So it's not 100%, but of the uh, old high pivot jack drive Brooklyn's of old. That's as close as you're going to get. No one's making a bike with 2005 geometry anymore for good reason, but that one's getting as close as you're going to find. And Trinity is kind of trying to remake that Honda. Uh, so you could, but theirs is so, so different that it's not nearly as, as good of a comparison. But I think the main point is that, yeah, no one wants to, bring back those bikes exactly as they were apart from the purpose of admiring the aesthetics of them. Um, I think there's also, there was another guy, I think it was just a personal project who was doing the same thing with the iron horse Sunday, taking that frame and just evolving the geometry a bit. Simon. 
I'm, I'm not so sure a bike company would go out of business for doing this because, you know, I've been in the bike business a long time and had a shop and people come in, they're like, I love how my 2008 bike rode. Can we get something now that is exactly like that? And it happens more than you might imagine. The way that used to go around switchbacks, switchbacks used to be the way you would judge a bike's performance. And thank God we don't do that anymore. And we don't build trails with fucking switchbacks in them. That's great. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> Let's take a minute to thank God for that. Yeah. 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 Let's put something in the trail that makes you go really slow and awkwardly around a corner. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. But I think the difference here is that you could get those 2008 bikes if you want. There's still plenty of them out there that people are trying to get rid of. Whereas all those good skis are being hoarded so somebody has to make these new these old designs new again but you have to put a bunch of money into that old bike to 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 bring it up you know so it's so it's not completely a clap wagon or or shopping cart as they call them in canada um so perhaps you know if it was new that would be something there but old geo but here's the thought simon i mean the person coming in who's like i want my 2008 bike i love exactly how it rides it's like hi let me introduce you to the past 10 years of technology, you freaking Luddite person who's been locked in a dungeon. Whereas, you know, that original moment, Bibby Pro, I literally, with the 300 skis we have in Blister headquarters, I would be stoked to take that ski out for a certain day in Crested Butte. Like, It's not, I'm not saying there's dozens upon dozens upon dozens of skis where I'd want to do that, but certain models, I would still want that exact thing to take out. And I'm not oblivious to what's happened in the past 10 years. So this sounds a little bit to me, the people rolling into your shop, um, they have not been on modern bikes is my suspicion. David is nodding vigorously. So, I am calling out all those people who are definitely not listening to this because they clearly, again, are oblivious about all things gear of the past 15 years. So, they aren't listening to gear 30. Um, Those are just some, those are some people who stopped living life. That's like people who like won't listen to any like music. Like they got their, their musical tastes were formed, shaped and ossified after like classic rock and they just won't they have no time in their lives to listen to anything since then so we call those dinosaurs and they're going extinct yeah well the difference is the music you listen to doesn't depend on your well-being when you're driving your car whereas a new mountain bike will make your mountain biking experience a lot safer and easier as well well folks we, di- we dipped into a bit of music criticism there right at the end. So, I feel like that's probably a good place for us to um, wrap up our rather monumental first ever three-part edition of Bikes versus Skis. Um, I think there were some good comparisons made, some good insights across the board. And um, let's do this again, maybe in like a year or so. See... see what brands have risen and or fallen or doing the new weird stuff till then see you guys all on facebook marketplace see you there bye everybody all right and now let's go to our crashes and close calls segment uh simon stewart seems like you're up this week what's been going on with you 
Well, on the on the close crashes and close calls front, you know, so I've been doing all the sort of well, I've been doing all the e-bike testing, and one of my favorite things to do, bar none, is the impossible climb. Right? It's like the climb that you just you wouldn't ever think about on your analog, on your regular bike, whatever we're going to designate them called these days. Um, super steep, kind of. There, there is definitely some risk involved because if you if you fuck it up. And you come off the come off the rock, or it's too steep. You you have a long way to go to you know self arrest or whatever it is, right? But it's intoxicating because you just you can go up <laughs> these vertical walls on these things, and these climbs are so satisfying to go up, right? The things you just you could go down and are hairy. And uh, I was doing this one. I'd like I sussed it out. Like, I'm like, okay, this one would be much better with a spotter, <laughs> <laughs> and, and like. I'm like, nah, I got this. <laughs> and uh, powered into it. And I, I just, I made a mistake with my, you know, my weight transfer and the, the front end got really light. And then the bike just shot out from underneath me and I went straight plummeting down this rock face, landed on my back. Backward. And as, I, as I'm looking oh. up, here comes the 50 pound e bike and lands right on me. <laughs> Crack. I was like, ow, ow. It didn't. Get hurt, but you know, yeah, bruised and sore for you know a week afterwards, mostly from the e-bike hitting me. Holy and cow! So forth, yeah. So okay, that's a perfect. I mean, that is actually both a crash and close call story. But you somehow miraculously didn't require medical attention on that one. That's right. Yeah. Um, wow. Couldn't tell you why. You know how injuries are. It's like the ones that seem like you shouldn't have gotten injured on are the ones you get injured on. This yeah. one definitely felt like what I should have gotten injured on. <laughs> you're as it's as like you're on your back yes. and you're seeing a fifty pound bike fall at you. You're like, thank God I have blister plus. Exactly. And okay. I'm going to test it here well, in a few few seconds. <laughs> seconds. Well, that is that is a perfect story. I'm I'm actually shocked. That sounds like one of those scenarios where like do that a hundred times and like 97 out of 100 you are going to need to use your uh, blister plus coverage. And so this was like the the random two or three percent where it didn't. Where it didn't, uh, it wasn't required. I'm going back to that spot, but I'm bringing a couple of spotters. So, okay. that, you know, if you do loop out, which, you know, that's, that's definitely a risk you take when you go up this stuff, that there's someone to catch me or the bike. <laughs> Dear Lord. Well, I'm glad you have our insurance. And uh, yeah, for folks who don't know, this is the kind of thing, if you're trying to session uh, impossible climbs... Uh, do check out our Blister Plus membership and injury insurance. This would be a perfect example of a time to do it. Though most of our injury stories, it's like we're kind of not doing the really gnar impossible thing. It's like we're done with the ride and we're just on the straightaway out and then blow up. That was my last bad mountain bike crash um, where I broke four ribs and destroyed my shoulder, which led to this whole creation of this Blister Plus uh, coverage. So, we've talked about that before. But anyway, folks, we will include a link in the show notes for this episode. If you're not totally sure what we're talking about here, please take three minutes to look in detail at this injury insurance uh, that you can have in addition to all the benefits of a Blister membership. Punchline is for many, 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 many people out there, it can end up saving you many thousands of dollars. So, 
anyway, thanks for sharing, Simon. Uh, try not to end up on your back with a 50-pound bike crashing on top of you. No, anytime soon, anyway. Don't let's uh, let's take a break from that. 24. Cheers. <laughs> All right, man. All right. Well, it is now time for our what we're celebrating segment, and this week we're celebrating great food and great restaurants and having the opportunity to check some of these places out. I am currently here in LA and last night I was at Pizzeria Bianco in LA. This of course is the second Pizzeria Bianco. The original is in Phoenix, Arizona. The founder is Chris Bianco. There is a lovely chef's table episode on Chris's pizza. You can find that on Netflix. It's quite fun and cool. Uh, and it's probably going to make you really want to check out Chris Bianco's pizza. Well, I got to do that last night and really enjoyed my time there. And by the way, this is not some insanely expensive thing. You can get a phenomenal pizza for not some outlandish price. And so, the next time you are in the Phoenix or LA area, well, then I can highly recommend Swing through, stop by Pizzeria Bianco. Now, I'm recording this Thursday night. It's We're just shy of midnight. Tomorrow, Friday, so the evening when this podcast will come out, I'm going to be heading over to Major Domo. I am a huge David Chang fan. You've heard Cody Townsend and me talk about David Chang at random moments on our Reviewing the News episodes. Well, David Chang founded Major Domo. And yes, we have Pizzeria Bianco the other night, Major Domo tonight, I guess, by the time you're hearing this. And so I would like to raise my glass to a couple of very cool people in the restaurant and food world and having the opportunity to check out what they're up to. And that. Then brings us to the end of this edition of Gear 30. I want to say thanks to the crew for another fun conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to all of you for listening. Now, don't forget, you've got the best pricing of the year on our Blister Summit. We'll include a link in the show notes of that episode to discounted accommodations, and you'll be able to find all of the registration information there. So check out that link. Enjoy your weekend, and we will talk to you this coming Monday on our Blister Podcast, where Cody Townsend is back for a slightly early edition of reviewing the news. That drops this Monday over on our Blister Podcast. So I will catch all of you over there. All right, everybody, take care.